Hi, and welcome to Chips in the Cookie. This is a diverse panel of Black and African Americans here to share our stories of navigating through a predominantly white spaces. Um, the one connector here is me, and I brought some of my friends together from different aspects of our life. Um, so I'm going to just introduce them to you. And in case you're wondering where Chips in the Cookie comes from, if you know me, you know that quite often when I go someplace or I take part of anything theatrical or school or work, I notice something that I am the only chip in the cookie. So I decided to get us all together. So we're going to start introducing some of my wonderful panelists. We're going to start with Rod Milam. Hi, uh, my name is Rod Milam. I'm currently in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm a broadcaster, have been for many, many years. I lived in New York City for about 12 years, lived in Japan, lived in uh, Spain as well. Um, worked on radio. I've also worked somehow at Wall Street and done a bunch of different jobs um, as I've been around. And I know a couple of these folks from, especially when I lived in New York. So I'm looking forward to this conversation um, amongst us uh, who are amongst the participants that we have going on and um, later on, probably an hour or so with other people who may have questions who've never heard some stories like this before during this time. Wonderful. And next, we're going to go to the lovely Paula Galloway. Uh, my name is Paula Galloway. I am a part-time actor, a full-time mom, uh, living here in uh, Queens. I uh, known a few of uh, my esteemed colleagues on the panel for quite some time uh, working in um, in a space like uh, the New York Renaissance Fair or theater in general. Uh, that's actually, I think, how Robbie and I met doing Shakespeare. Uh, yeah. So yes, that's, uh, so I'm happy to be here. All right, thank you. And we also have the lovely Tiza Cherie Evans. Hi everyone, my name is Tisa Cherie and I am an actor, a promo model, an event manager, an event producer here in the New York City Tri-State area. And I'm, uh, I know a lot of these people also from uh, doing various theatrical productions, primarily the uh, New York Renaissance Fair. So um, it's just, it's great to be able to just chat amongst friends tonight. Wonderful. And Mr. Robbie Taylor. <laughs> lovely, by the way. I'm just saying. Oh, <laughs> um, I'm lovely. I am an actor, musician, who is mainly at this point a high school teacher. I've uh, lived all over the world. I lived in Saudi Arabia. I lived in Singapore. I've traveled extensively and then moved to South Florida, then moved up here where I started acting and now I am a special ed high school teacher. Beautiful. And the woman who my children call their fairy godmother, Maya Jordan. Hello, everyone. I'm Maya. I was born and raised in Michigan. I live in New York City now. I am an actor and a singer and a composer for film and video and I co-run my own film company with my husband and as you all know I've met most of these lovely people through theatrical things and um, I just want to thank Candace for putting this together you know before we actually start the discussion Candace thank you yeah. so much for coming up with this idea 
Thank you for inviting us to participate and thank you for inviting me to your table. I'm a multiracial woman of color and often multiracial people, especially who present the way I do, often don't get invited to these conversations even though we all have such shared experiences. So I wanna thank you for that and thank my fellow panelists. Wonderful. Thank you. And last but not least, my <laughs> ride or die, Tamara Thomas. Hey, everyone. So I am the only non-actor on this panel. <laughs> I am Tamara Thomas. I am a pastry chef. I've been in the culinary arts for 17 years now. Um, I currently teach culinary arts, baking and pastry to people, to black and brown people who have had greater disadvantages in their life and helping them to grow and become and giving them job skills to grow and become and and reimagine their existence um i know the wonderful candace kendall brown and have through her have met all of these amazing people and i am glad that all of you are here for the conversation um i know with my personal friends i've probably never told some of my stories too so i think in order for us to all move forward we definitely need to hear everything. We need to hear other perspectives. So I'm excited about being a part of this. Thank you. Thank you. And again, thank you for all of you that are taking your time to come and join us. We are only going to get to the tip of the iceberg, to be quite honest with you, because if we did tell every single one of our stories, you know, we're talking another Bible here. Um, and just really quickly, before we get into our the three topics we're going to touch on, I see that somebody asked, um, that some people don't know the difference between Black, African American, and people of color. So what I'm going to do just really quickly, I identify as Black because my parents are from a country in South America called Guyana, and my grandparents are from Guyana. So my relationship to Africa is a bit further off. So I just say Black because it just encompasses everything. Um, some people say African-American. Does anybody else want to take that definition? Well, uh, if you want to just go strictly from the straight from Africa to America situation, then we would be considered African-American. However, personally, I always say black because I like to take in the account of people who are Carib of Caribbean ancestry, who otherwise, if, if you just saw them in the street, you go, oh, they're black. You know, so that's how I identify as black, but African American is generally thought of as American black folks. Right. And, and then, in terms of people of color, yes, um, that is obviously an all-encompassing term. Sometimes it's helpful, you know, with social media and a soundbite to say people of color because it encompasses a lot. Um, a lot of people like myself who are multiracial use people of color because it's the correct identifier. Um, because we're uh, a mix. So it can be used in both ways. If you're a mixed person like I am, you often use people of color, but it can be used as an umbrella term just to be efficient if you're talking about Black people and Hispanic people and Native people and Asian people. Um, that all falls under the umbrella of people of color as well. So I hope that answered the question from Antoinette. And now the um, we're going to just break this up into three major topics and then our final topic, which is moving on. Our first one is going to be microaggressions. And we have all, all 
had to deal with this in some way or some form. So I'm going to ask Tisa if you can just share a story that not many of your peers know where you've had to deal with microaggressions being a black woman navigating in a very white space. Sure. This is something that I will never forget. Uh, Early on in my career, I was touring with a theater company that focused on um, plays, musicals, and and short plays for young adults. Um, Loved working working with the company, but I noticed something that kept coming up every time we went on the road. Um, And I I was on the road with them for four years. Uh, No matter what character I played, no matter what I was wearing, and typically I was always wearing something where I was really covered up from head to toe. And uh, no matter what the instance, we would go someplace and we would get letters from mothers who said that I was too sexual during the show. Uh, And so I always... (laughs) I knew it was coming because I would get called to the principal's office of the school that we had done the show for. And, and it would always open with, first off, we just, we, we just want to apologize to you. We, we thought you did a wonderful job. The show was fantastic. And we just don't want you hearing about this from anyone else. So we just want to apologize first and, you know, and, and express that and let you know what was said. So thankfully, I, I had a supportive theater company. I didn't really have to... Um, uh, I, I didn't worry about that. They, they definitely had my back. And, and the staff that, that always brought us in um, did have my back and our back. But it just became a little much. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one mother write that, and this is a show that was directed by a 70-plus-year-old white woman who was from Great Britain. So she directed and blocked all of this. Um, And I know she did an excellent job. I had one mother actually say to me, or wrote in the letter, when she straddled the chair, it was as if I was watching someone in a porn. Jesus. God, dude. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Head to toe. I mean, it was, it was, it was a very traditional show. I literally had on a dress that was, would be something that you'd see out of Little House on the Prairie and tie-up boots. And I was reciting a poem from a, a, a renowned poet. And that's what I looked like to her. I went to another school, same, same issue happened. And we were performing in theater, so they literally had to like track this down and send it to the school to make sure that it was sent to our theater company. Different, different town, different principal's office, wearing the cutest little pink suit. Did a, once again, a choreographed number. Mother wrote that my dance movements were too sexual. So, and I was a doormouse. That was my character, I was a mouse. Jesus Christ. I had to make sure that I didn't move my pelvis at all because it was perceived as sexual movement. And then, of course, the crowning touch 
was uh, being in a Shakespearean show. So this was show, a show for uh, young adults who were a little older. And I had a kiss with someone who was not, was, was white. Mm -hmm. That they tried to keep from me because they didn't want my, they didn't want anybody to hurt my feelings. Um, and they, they stood their ground. We kept it, we kept it in the show, but, but it was offensive. I was, um, just seen as just overly, overtly sensual and coming, you know, on to him. And why did the kiss have to last so long? Um, so it just kind of plays over and over again in your mind when you walk into an audition, audition or when you walk into a conference, um, especially because I do a lot of conferences where I have to, you know, um, be in a, maybe in a business suit and in heels. And I've, I've literally walked in and had men and women just look me up and down like, oh, well, you know, here you are. I, I suppose what you're wearing is acceptable, but it, it, it always crosses your mind, whether you're in a professional setting or whether you're going into that setting where you know that you're going to be one of the few black people. And I always am mindful of, I don't want to, and, and I didn't look sensual at all for any of the things that right. I described, yeah, I, but, but it never leaves you mentally to always think that you are thought of as this hypersexual creature that no matter what you do, you know, yeah. You're trying to come on to someone, or you're you're over overstimulated in some way, and it, it runs through my head. Like all that shit goes back so far. Like you're either mammy or you're sapphire, which is the oversexed <laughs> young yep. woman. Yep. You know, and yeah. you are very goddamn clearly not a mammy, and so they automatically <laughs> assume, oh, she's got very curvy lips. She's got a, a, a figure. She's got a booty you know, then obviously because we can actually see the curves, that means that she is dangerous to our white men. Yeah. And, you know? and just, and, oh, that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's a conversation. Oh, my Where to start? Oh, All right. We can get to interracial dating in a minute. We can get to interracial dating. Y'all can say something soon. That's, that's, that's a whole we'll other speak line. On. We have to be in the audience on that conversation. Just, just, yeah. just, um, just <laughs> so to let the audience know, <laughs> we are hearing some of these stories. Tisa, you've never told me that. Yeah, so hearing some of these stories for us is hard. And we replay stuff that we've gone through. So please understand that. This is raw. This is real. It ain't rehearsed. The only thing we rehearsed is, do we turn on our mic? Do we turn off our mic? That's the only thing we rehearse. Sort of. I knew Damn. it was going to be like this. I'd have brought my tissues. Damn. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Should have been a very tense that. time with everything that's going on. Oh, this God, is why yes. we're doing this. Absolutely. Anyhow, so Absolutely. to bring us back on track, mm -hmm. um, can anyone else give me, you know, uh, another microaggression story before we move on to our next topic? Oh, and I'm seeing do you want? <laughs> <laughs> so do you one of us. Uh, Paula, uh, give me what you got. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, try and, I'll try and summarize these. Let's see. Uh, I believe the first time I actually became aware of uh, the first microaggression that I ever got, I think, was in college. Um, 
it was just a simple little exchange. This uh, couple walks uh, is walking through the is walking through the hallways that where the rest of the where the rest of us group is we're practicing we're rehearsing for a show and everything, and uh, one of the guys is uh, was a guide. I think for, 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 for them and they couldn't find him and they were looking for him and everything like that. And they just happened to run into me and they asked me, it was like, do you happen to know where this person is? And, um, and I, I was just like, Oh, of course you had this way down da, 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 and I gave them the whole directions and they're, they're, they're so grateful. They're just like, thank you so much. And the lady, of course, she's got like the helmet hair and everything. Like, you speak so well. Oh, my God. To which I replied, well, well, yes, I read. <laughs> <laughs> so articulate. So articulate. So articulate. It's been weaponized. Yeah, when someone, when someone refers to you as articulate, it's been weaponized. Yes. Of course, I mean, I could go into the whole, uh, yes, um, when I would go into job interviews uh, before I started doing acting. The one great thing I can say about doing stuff in acting is I never have to worry about them not knowing I'm Black. Headshot makes it real simple. Yeah, it's real simple. It's according to how you're feeling right Sorry, Somebody, if... If Sorry, you are not, if you are not one of the panelists, can you please mute the microphone? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, yeah. so no, the, um, that's the so there's there's that one. There's also yes, let's see, um, yes, going into the going into job interviews, uh, they'd hear me on the phone. They'd be, they'd be like, okay, we're looking forward to seeing for you and every and everything like that. I walk into the room and it's you can see the smile just surprise. Wait, can, can, can I make the it's face? It's a fight. <laughs> it's a fight. Please, please, where's the, the face? Can I make the face? The Everybody make the face. When they, make the face. When they one, realize you're black. One. one Two, three. It's universal. I promise you that. Ladies and gentlemen, and this is my personal favorite. Sorry, my personal favorite. Let's see. This was shortly after I'd given birth to my son. Now, my son, he's biracial. My my husband is white. My I I myself am black. So. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm taking him to I'm taking him to his pediatrician, and he's like this tiny little scoop of a thing. And I've got him in a stroller, and you know, mom hasn't slept. I'm exhausted and everything like that. And I'm just I'm just waiting to cross the street. And the woman who's standing next to me looks mm. into my looks into the the, the into the uh, into the stroller, and she looks at me and everything like that. And the first words are in the, on, out of her mouth are not he's beautiful or that's a beautiful baby or how old or anything like that she says how much she wants to know what my <laughs> nanny rates are oh yes. my god for and those of you one? that don't know um when you are a black mother and you have a biracial child and that child comes out really really light <laughs> they all think you're the nanny Mm -hmm. Let that sit in for minutes. They think you're the nanny and they don't care. They will come up and say, oh, how much are your rates? <laughs> she wanted to know hey, my rates. Candy, yeah. can I add something about microaggressions yes, yes. so you can get a little Please. bit younger? Yes. So I'm one of the, um, I actually grew up in white spaces. I grew up in middle America, suburbia. Um, and it doesn't just happen 
the, the microaggressions, they don't just happen when you're an adult. They actually happen even younger. I remember being a little girl, not little, but like 10, 11, 12, and being the only girl on the block who didn't get to stay at certain people's houses. I remember being the only girl on the block who didn't get invited to some slumber parties, although I was friends with the same children. I remember the looks people would give me when their grandmothers or uncles or somebody from the family came over and I was there and they'd give that look where they had to explain to them why I was there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and of course, and you guys can say it with me, the, well, she's special. Yeah. Oh, she's, she's not like the she, other ones. She's, yeah, she's different. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. She, wait, wait. And she's not, she's not black. Black. She's not black. black. Yeah, not black. We'll cover that in a minute. <laughs> yes. But the thing is, is these were told to me as a child. Mm -hmm. Okay. This isn't what happened to me as an adult when I was ready to deal with it and armed for it. Right. This happened to me as a kid. As a kid, I had to understand why I couldn't go and say the night at so-and-so's house. And my so-and-so's can never say at my house, even though they could say at everybody else's house. You know, when I was 16, one of the white girls across the street got pregnant and a neighbor said to me, we thought it'd be you. Me? <laughs> <laughs> I was a 16 year old virgin. How was it me? Wow. wow. <laughs> you know? But so hmm. when we talk about microaggressions, I want you all to realize that one, we carry those microaggressions for a lifetime. Yep. Yeah. Okay. They so it's death by like it's death by a thousand cuts. It's death by a thousand cuts. A thousand cuts. And for some of us, you know, some grew up in black neighborhoods, and God bless them, they were so lucky. Um, but for those of us who mm. didn't grow up in those black spaces, those micro cuts happened in elementary school, in mm -hmm. middle school, and high school, kindergarten. You know. And kindergarten. Yeah. So, well, have those so not just what you're saying to adults, but what are you saying to kids? And please don't think that the little brown kid next to you doesn't see you make that weird look at grandma. Yeah. You see oh, it. they know. Oh, you know the I look. See it. You can recognize the look. look no matter where you are. I've been in yeah. many countries. I've seen that look. I, and it all looks the same wherever yeah. you go. So it, yeah. it's known. You're not hiding it. It's like you're not hiding, pulling your purse away. You're not totally hiding. Locking your doors. You're locking <laughs> across the street or falling behind me. I'm, we see it. Yeah. We know what's going Jenny. on. So ah. either don't do it or do it. So I have a question. And I remember, I remember you know, in granted, school. Granted, I'm a bit older than some of y'all here. So <laughs> here, raise your hand if, you've, got, if you've heard your credit to your race. Oh, mm. I got that one. <laughs> Maya, you're not a, Maya, you're not a credit to your race. I, I, I'm not. <laughs> Maya, what, what I get is the microaggression in the form of a compliment. Oh, God. Bring it. Is, you know, um, and this happened as a child. It's happened to me as an adult where telling me, well, you're the good kind. <laughs> the good black oh people. God. I'm the good oh kind. <laughs> yes. Um, or, well, you're not really black, you know, yeah. by white people telling me that I'm not really black as if that is a compliment, as if ignoring the other parts of me is a compliment to me. 
Whereas and, I would be getting that I'm not black enough from the other end. Oh, yeah. Speaking oh, of I get that, that too. Oh, oh, get <laughs> Speaking of that. Okay. Speaking of that, that's going to take us right into our next topic. Oh, another good, yes, thing, segued. Yes. Another thing that I know all of us have dealt with is, once again, we are living in white spaces. You hear how we talk. You hear how we conduct ourselves. You hear, for some of you that actually know us, you see how we are. And then we get told we are not black enough. Oh, my God. Now, that has been following me since I was about seven years old. And yeah. for this one, I actually want to hit Rod because I think out of all of us, yeah. you as an adult have worked in other sense. countries. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, are representing all around and i know you've got the countries i want to jump on after him yes so rod can you share with us stories in which you know they want you to be just you know a little bit more black urban either more ethnic or more urban or yes. um, what, what's the other? There are like five other euphemisms that end up getting used. I don't know. It, it, it's weird for me because I've, and I'll, I'll get around the world and I've, I'm watching the clock. The, I was born in this town where I am right now. It's, it's part of St. Louis. Ferguson is like eight miles that way. Um, and I'm in University City. The town is about 50% black, 50% white. That's all that we had here. There are like 15 Asians and one Latino. That's all that we had like when I was growing up. So that's the mix. And I ended up crossing, but even though University City was about 50-50, the town was striated. So up in the upper, in the northern third, it was almost 90% black. In the southern third, it's 90% white. In the middle, it was about a mix, but it was like a gradient. It would go from one to the other. When I was younger, I lived all the way up north in the mostly black part. And because my mom was an elementary school teacher and a lot of integration and desegregation was just starting, I ended up getting sent intentionally to the elementary school all the way on the other side of town near Washington University, the school was three, there were about 300 kids in the elementary school. And I was one of eight black kids in the whole school. And the only one when it wasn't my sister who was younger than I am, who actually, did, I didn't even live in the area. So for me, it's always felt like I've and been told at times, well, you have to represent your whole race. So that sort of thing from being a kid, I represent all black people to a lot of people who get seen. For me, that's been a load that I've always borne. Didn't know that it wasn't there. It's just, it's just present. Um, so to go to another country where you end up, you say, oh, you're gonna, re you're, you have to represent. You're not just representing your family. Of course, you're always representing your family. Like when I went to the black church that we went to, the African the AME church um, in St. Louis, you're representing your people. And then when you go to another country, you feel like you're representing the United States, which is weird because. A lot of times, depending on the country I went to, they didn't think I was American. So, I mean, because yep. I don't look like Brad Pitt, I don't look like all these other people that they see on TV who are American, which is kind of fun. You can have fun with it where, oh, if the other Americans that are around you are acting like idiots, it's like, well, that's not me. <laughs> At least in this part, they don't think it's, <laughs> I don't know them. And I speak French, so I'm not talking to you. But I've had incidents happen when I've been in France, in France where people have said stuff to me and it's like, okay, wow, that was phenomenally racist. I didn't have it happen so much in Spain, um, but in Japan, tons of things have happened. 
and me being a broadcaster, being a journalist, the only comments that I've gotten on my voice, which are which were less fitting of me is when I was little, despite the way my voice sounds right now, on the phone, people would say, oh, you sound like a girl. And I'd say, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. That's the only <laughs> thing that would, would say. But I've always been articulate and read the announcements and all that sort of thing. And that's a microaggression. It, it, it is when you're articulate and all that, because I didn't know how to take it from some black people because they thought that I was trying to be too white. White people would say it. And most of the ones who said it then, that was, that was absolutely not a compliment. Like, I am black and I'm a boy. And I don't know why you have to pick this whole thing apart. It's coincidental that I went on to be, to work in the radio. My voice was like, actually not because of that. I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist. I write news. And to this day, people say, when they found out, oh, you worked at the NPR station, you worked at CBS, you did some things, you had stuff on CNN and internationally, they'll say, oh yeah, you got that radio voice. It's like, I'm a journalist. I have to write and report and read and interview people and do all that stuff. That's my job. But all they hear is, the voice and the articulate thing in, in the good part. And I say all that stuff ahead of time because when I got to Japan and I was a converse, I was doing freelance journalism, but my main job was to be an English teacher, a conversational English teacher. Whole gig was to go in and to teach people who paid a lot of money to come into a private school to learn how to speak English correctly or correctly, whatever the heck that is. They were learning how to, most of the people in Japan and I was in Tokyo in the giant city to learn how to speak English with a certain accent or be fluent with it. People in Japan have six years of English um, in, in school. And I was teaching maybe some high school kids, but a lot of adults. You would think if somehow you got somebody who, was a, who for eight years had been an international journalist on the radio, who got paid, whose English was good enough, that they got paid enough to speak around the world and to actually use the language, they would promote me and say, hey, this is the guy that you want to have teach you English. Come in into our school. We have a professional. This is great. Well, it didn't happen. Part of our 50% of our time spent at the company was to actually go and teach people English. I was like, okay, cool. And the other 50% is we're supposed to interview people who want to come to the school and learn English and try to assess what level they're on because we can tell as native speakers, you know, how high up or down they actually are. Well, that's supposed to be half of our job. And we were supposed to be doing basically five, because of our school size, five to 10 interviews a week. The, the staff at the school, they knew I didn't look American. I'm not American enough. You're black. And literally the first word that I learned when I learned when I was in Japan was scary because I had people say it enough to me while I was just walking down the street or in a restaurant. Kawaii, Sone, Kawaii. Kawaii is scary. Kawaii is cute. Kawaii is scary. And I didn't speak Japanese before I went. But the management decided you're not really American. You can't be. And this is all pre-Obama. I did five interviews the entire year that I lived in Tokyo. And that's the microaggression that they didn't think I could do the job, even though one woman was from Texas, had a very heavy Texas accent that most people couldn't understand. The other guy was from Wisconsin. And, you know, oh, yeah, he sounded a bit like this. You know, he could talk that sort of thing from Minnesota was kind of in there. It's like, fine, if you want to talk with them, that's great. Or you can speak like me, where they actually teach everybody on TV to sound like I sound. So it's just been weird because the, even that sort of stigma has stuck with me to this day. And I'm in my waning days of my 40s right now. And I've only just now kind of embraced being able to try to do voiceover work because it has always been weaponized. It's been this thing, the way you talk, you're not really you. I'm confident in myself and I, you know, I don't want to be judged on my voice. And to throw that out there as something that is something of worth is very bothersome to me. And I think a lot of us juggle, just want to try to exist. And you can't exist. You get something that is so innate to you, just point it out. Even if, it's, if you think it's being complimentary, most of the time it's not. 
Some, if I'm having a good day, sure it is. But a lot of times it's not. You're pretty for a white girl or for a black girl. I've heard that. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. It's the most ridiculous yeah. thing on earth. If you like my voice, uh-huh. that's fine. But if it's being brought up in terms or situations, why don't you just, you can treat me like a person. I like your voice. That can be fine. But a lot of times it's not. And especially with the audience that we have watching, if, you're, if you've ever said you're, said uh, something like, oh, well, you, you sound so great, or you're, you, you're, you're really articulate, or other things they have attested or tried to uh, describe to Obama, oh, well, you're not like that, that sort of thing. That is, that, those, those cuts are deep. And wherever you go, those, those things are problems as well. So I don't know. It, it kind of got to what you wanted to talk about. There are a zillion things all of us could talk about. But okay. this is one just from the international kind of realm that you would get. And trust me, I get all the stuff here too, but I'm over it now. I'm old right. enough where I don't, I don't have to care. I will yeah. I could point to my microphone over here. Let me get some voiceover work. I, I will do all that stuff. I'll still, I'll still, still do everything. But it's very interesting that that's – that's the thing. And I haven't traveled internationally much since Obama's president. Maybe, maybe I'm kind of American now, but in, in Japan, what just got released, there was a video from NHK, the, uh, the, na- the giant national broadcaster. They were trying to describe what was going on in the United States. Why were black people so mad? And the visuals were, it was literally a cartoon, but it was cartoonish. They had a giant black guy just looking mad and just stomping and oh, screaming up and down. And he looked Christ. like oh, he looked like yeah, I mean he looked like the Hulk on steroids. And then they had one black like guy a, with a guitar. A black He's always, stereotypical Hulk. Big well, lip. He did, but he had wide, broad ass nose. Well, not just that, but they also had the guy sitting on. They had some blues guy sitting on a fire hydrant just oh. playing while an Irish uh, while while because <laughs> we all play jazz. And I was like, wow. I mean, I well, that was that was my stereotype. But oh. Oh, you you play jazz. Oh no, you're in the military. Oh no, and people say, "What do you do?" And I'm a, I'm an English teacher. Yeah. And no one can believe it. You know, it's like, yes, I speak English and I do this, and that's what I do. And it's not okay. to pick on Japan. That's just one that I thought of because it's been 20 years, like this October, since I've been there. I can tell you a zillion stories that happen over here with all that. But this is just for the short time we have to kind of add a little perspective to what's going on. Because you know, no one's, no one's, no one's ever said that I'm, that I'm too sexual. That's not a thing for me. So that, I'll get that one. I couldn't relate to that. I speaking of that, I'm going to camera, so. gonna be speaking objectifying of, here. Robbie. Speak, speaking of Robbie. sexual chocolate. Robbie. <laughs> sexual chocolate, everybody. Sexual chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you said you, you had wanted go, to piggyback so, on that. Uh, so basically, like, I grew up overseas. I moved to Saudi Arabia when I was two. And I lived there until I was uh, I lived there for, until I was about seven. In Saudi Arabia, it wasn't a huge deal just because we were on an American compound, or at least I didn't perceive it as a huge deal because I was from two to seven, so I didn't notice. The uh, there were a couple of uh, Arab guys that my mom taught. My mom's a teacher, so you know I have to speak correctly or she'll beat my ass. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> There were a couple of uh, Arab guys that my mom taught who would come around and they had magnificent froze. This oh. was you know, early 80s, late 70s. I don't know how with Arabic hair you got a nice fro like that, but one dude, his name was Fahad Mark, and he loved all sorts of black culture. That's on the good side of the issue. <laughs> it wasn't there a lot. Uh, but the first time, oh, and then after that, I moved to Saudi Arabia, where I was for four years. The first time that I ever remember being called a nigger mm. was in Singapore. 
mm. was by another little kid. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but he was like, something, 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 you a nigger. I was like, what does that mean? I don't, what? And, but I knew it wasn't good just by the way that he was saying it. So I went home and I talked to my mom and I was like, so, so this kid called me a nigger, what is that? My mom just was like, <sighs> and looking back on it now, I know what it was. It was, I thought we got away from that. Mm-hmm. I thought we were in a different enough country that we wouldn't have to deal with this. And so she sat me down and we had the conversation. The talk. The talk, the talk. yeah. Um, first in the series, yeah. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. sort of, yeah. The yeah. first where I had to, it had to be explicit. Um, and so after that, I started noticing things. Like there was a brand of toothpaste in Singapore at the oh, time. Oh, God. I know it. Darky toothpaste. Darky. <laughs> Darky. Yeah. <laughs> Which was, if you Are imagine an old reconstruction era caricature of a black man on your toothpaste. Oh, that's I can imagine it. it. Yeah. Ugh. I'm getting it my was, brain thinking about it, but yeah. <laughs> it was a lot. Um, and that was also where I started being told, but you don't sound black. <laughs> you look black, but you don't, you don't sound black, which yeah. is just continuing on for, you know, till this day. It's where I first heard the term bounty bar. Here in the U.S., it's an uh, Oreo. Oreos. Uh, yes. In England, yeah. it's a bounty bar because it's dark on the outside and I coconut on the inside. Yeah. <laughs> Here's Amazing. a funny thing. Yeah. I just watched a show today called Not Black Enough. And in the logo of it is within all the O's, they're Oreos. <gasps> oh, my God. There you go. And I was yeah. like... And it t- it took me watching school days to understand what the kids meant when they used to call me Oreo mm-hmm. when oh, I was God, in no. school. Because yeah. I didn't know until I watched school days. And I was like, wait, what now? Elementary school, you learn quick what yeah. it means. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you learn quickly. If I may. Oh. Learn quickly. Yes, hold up, please. This- you were constantly, constantly, constantly death by a thousand cuts, like you were saying. You are too black for the white kids. Mm-hmm. and too white for the black kids so you're in this weird in in between space you're in this weird liminal space where you have to become your own friend you have to become your own advocate because mm-hmm. no yeah. one else is going to fight for you until you start fighting right yeah. um maya you i know you have um a great story on this yeah. before we jump to our next topic uh, it's just, it's interesting navigating these spaces because one of the themes that we're talking about is being a person of color in a white space. And since so many of us are involved in different industries where we find we're the only person of color in the room. And I, I've experienced, interestingly, the same thing with two different sets of people, the white people and the black people in the same show, of being <laughs> too ethnic for the white producers, mm-hmm. but not black enough for the show. Mm-hmm. I went to audition for uh, a show that I was tailor-made for, 
It was a fairy pirate show. And anyone who knows me knows that fairy That's and pirate mm -hmm. is on my performance resume many times. Um, and in her face. Yes. Uh, Taylor made for this show. Also, I'm a classically trained singer. I have a lyric operatic voice. And I went to this audition and I thought I did a pretty good job of it. But I could tell that the, the white producers of this production company were like, hmm, right? hmm, what do we do with what her? Do do because with her? Yes. I fall into that category also because I am not an overly sexualized woman. What do you do with me? They don't know what to do with me. So I auditioned for this show and then I got a call back. Not for the show I auditioned for. I got a call black. The call black. Hey, guys. <laughs> That's what I'm calling it from that now on. Right? I got a call back for the black show. And when I walked into that callback, it was like a record scratch because everyone was looking at me like, what the hell is she doing here? And honestly, I thought there was a, like a, a clerical mistake because this is not the show I auditioned for. The white producers liked me, but didn't know what to do with me. And so they had me go to this callback for the Black show. I did the callback, and during the entire callback, because for the Black show, it was nothing but a Black director, Black music director, Black assistant director. They also didn't know what to do with me. They kept asking, um, do you know any gospel songs? And I was like, I... I, I do, but I know like the choir version of the gospel song. I would read my lines and they would ask me to read them in a more urban way. I knew I wasn't a fit for the show, right? You do it more urban. And I'm thinking, have you, have you looked at my resume? Like, like, what do I do? And so to, to literally have both of these experiences of not being white enough, but then not being black enough for this show. And I actually ended up getting in the show and I'm convinced I only got in because whoever they asked first and second turned it down. And so then Tell I them spent- the song that you sang. Which book? Well, I- Well, no, I mean, for, for, the, the, for the audition, oh. the way oh. you- Oh, well, they, 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 they asked for lots of gospel songs and I was like, well, I could sing I could sing the hell out of Amazing Grace, but I, it's going to be classical, right? You know, like, the, where do I fit in mm -hmm. these white spaces, you know? And yeah. so getting into that show, I spent the whole time basically being told by the director that I wasn't Black enough, constantly giving me notes of, well, well, what about when your family was doing barbecue? All these things. Someone created a list and said that if you are a black person, these are yes. your cultural touchstones. Yes. And if you aren't black into you. these things, you aren't black enough. If yep. you are yep. a nerd, you are not black enough. If yep. you speak a certain way, you are not black enough. Yep. If you are into classical music, you aren't black enough. If you're into Shakespeare, you aren't black enough. And if you listen is, to rock music, if you listen to rock you're music, not you black aren't black enough. enough. Or country. You're smart. You're I'm right. running out of, I'm exactly. running out of fingers, y'all. I'm running out of fingers. <laughs> exactly. Someone created this great list out there, the list of being a black person. And all of us have this experience of, of being like, but, but I am who I am. Why right. the greatest privilege is to live your life authentically and be who you really are and, and not have to have that 
represent or not represent your race. That is the greatest privilege. And that is a privilege that people of color, no matter how they identify, that's, that's, that's something that we're still striving for. And if this is the experience that I have, being multiracial and presenting the way I do, it is 10 times worse for someone who isn't mixed like me. And these are experiences that we have every single day. Here's another thing. Sorry, I just want to, in 92, right during the Rodney King riots, everybody was like, come on, man, we need to be more black. Why aren't you so black? You need to be more black. Why are you listening to that rock and roll? What the fuck? And I'm like, okay, you know what? And this is where I, I finally landed on the thing that would cement me in myself. And I said, listen, every single thing I do is black simply because I do, I do it. it. Yep. If I decide that I want to listen to country music, I'm going to be the most Charlie, Br- Charlie Pride singing motherfucker you ever heard because <laughs> I am black. You pulled out the Charlie Pride. Yes. You could have gone with Darius Rucker. I mean, you could have gone with more modern. He said good country. (laughs) (laughs) Chase it. Leave booty alone. Um, Because because of time, as I said, we can go on and on and on. But because of time, I do want to segue into our next topic, which leads into our professional lives. And that is, in order to have what many of you have, we have to work twice as hard to get half. And I I know I said I wasn't going to share any of my stories, but I'm going to just share this one really quick. The apartment I'm in now, I'm very fortunate because I had a friend who was a realtor and got me into this apartment. But before I got into this apartment, I had to use an agent that I didn't know. And I would take my children with me. They are very fair-skinned, biracial children. Because I knew when I went into that real estate office, that I said, I am a single mother with two sons. I knew what they were thinking. So I had to use my children as props just to get shown apartments here in Astoria. And this was only four years ago. (laughs) Never mind the fact that my credit was good. Never mind the fact I had the money, but nobody was gonna show me anything so I had to parade my beautiful children because I knew the reaction I was going to get, which is, oh, my God, they're so handsome. They're, and the look of confusion of, how did you produce those? But, you know, the other one looks white. almost white. <laughs> so mm-hmm. on that, I'm opening back up the floor to discussing how we have to work twice as hard and we get half the recognition. Ooh, Candy, can I take this one? Yes, Team Mama. Go, go. So I am a chef. Um, Went to culinary school, learned all. I'm a pastry chef specifically. Um, Award-winning. Ooh, and I'm an award-winning pastry chef. I like pastry. She was on Sweet Genius, and she won. (laughs) What? Ah, Anyway, 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 focus. (laughs) So I am a pastry chef. I have, um, if you look at my resume, I have a, a 
fairly strong resume as a chef. Um, I have a nerd-like food knowledge. <laughs> you know, I love food. I breathe it. I live it. I love it. Um, I am very qualified to do my job. I always have been. Um, and But I found in this industry that, one, I'm often during the first week of my jobs, wherever I've worked, there's always somebody who comes up to me. You know, they only hired you because you're black. Oh, really? Are you serious? Dang. Not because yeah, I'm a patient. Just wow. Some, somebody just literally walks up to you and just wow. says yes. that. There is always because someone, Always. Because wow. how does that help? Always. Someone how, how does, who how says, does, you know, you only life? hired you because you're black. Now, again, I am an award-winning pastry chef. I have a food knowledge that will shut down most chefs, okay. savory or otherwise. But I only got my job because I'm black. Mm-hmm. Or I get the people who, when they find out I'm a pastry chef, instantly want, well, do you know how to make pound cake or seven up cake or sweet potato pie? Because although I can make you a sweet potato souffle that will stop your heart. <laughs> yes, literally. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing people think I can make is a sweet potato pie. I have actually, in 17 years, as working as a pastry chef, I have never once put a sweet potato pie on my menu. Never. Not because I don't make a sweet potato pie, because I make a damn good sweet potato pie. But I don't want to give into the stereotypes. I'm not going to let you put me in this tiny box of I can only make Southern soul desserts and, and not give me the opportunity to show you that I am a chef equally. I am a chef. I have worked these lines. I have stood these hours. I have, I've got the cuts and burns to prove it. But I can't get the recognition or people will explain ingredients to me because I'm black. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes it's also because I'm a woman, too, because Lord knows we don't Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the things that I have to do to prove to someone, you know, it, when I finally did, become an award-winning pastry chef. Now I've got something I can say. But here's the thing. I've got 17 years in this fucking industry. I shouldn't have to say that I am an award-winning pastry chef. I should have to say I'm a pastry chef. And people should understand automatically that means I know what I'm doing. And that's the kind of thing, the we have to do twice as much just to get you to listen to half of it. Just to get you to listen to half of it. Yeah. You know, I would love to go someplace and put a sweet potato pie on the menu. I never will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I have I to open will. up a restaurant for you to put sweet potato nope. pie on the menu. <laughs> well, okay, if, if, we could, though, if we could, though, could, could we go back to the sweet potato souffle, though? <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk after. We'll talk after. We'll talk after. Thank you. Thank you. First time I heard that we have to do we have to do twice as much to get half mm-hmm. as much credit mm-hmm. yeah. is from my grandfather who had 13 children. Yep. He was a sharecropper in Virginia. Oh that's twice God. as much, 13 had, kids. Yeah, that's a lot. That's more than twice as much. <laughs> 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 he had a, I have problems with my one. I can't even stop. He had a sixth grade education. Mm-hmm. All of his 13 children graduated from college. Yep. Yeah. Now, Amen. my grandfather was about as light as Maya is, and he made sure that all of us, all the grandchildren, he sat us down and he was like, okay, you need to know you will never just be given anything. Never. We're going to have to work hard 
for every single thing that you get. For every, for, you are going to have to work twice as hard to get half as much respect as if you were some, <laughs> some white average. man. Average. Average. Yeah. No, I'm average white as, man. As an average white man. It's like the, it's the PETA principle. You fail upwards, like Trump. That motherfucker can't tie his own shoes, but he's the goddamn <laughs> president of the U.S. Wait. He has failed upwards. Oh, let's hope and we could leave his we name out. Yeah, leave, don't say his name. <laughs> let's not, yeah. We don't want to invoke that. We're not let's allowed to do that. Us. For example, Obama <laughs> had to be five times as smart. Yes. Even considered. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, and it's not just work two and three times harder to get half the recognition. It's work two or three times harder just to live in a space. Yeah. People of yeah. color, black people have to do so much extra mental math that white people do not. If we are nature lovers and want to go hiking, we probably do research to make sure that there's yes. been no recent white supremacy activity in the area. White people don't have to do that. Yep. When my husband and I got married, my husband's Puerto Rican, and we got married in a rural area um, and because we wanted to get married in a camp. We, before booking the space, wrote to Black and Latino churches in the area to ask them what it's like to be a person of color. We drove to the area and rode around town and counted how many black and brown people we saw on the street. We randomly went into restaurants to see how many people of color were being served. I pulled aside my black waitress and said, I know this is random, but I got to ask you, what's it like to be a person of color in this area? I wrote the camp that we were hosting our wedding at, every single B&B &B and Airbnb and hotel that our guests were going to stay at, I wrote that and said, I have a frank question to ask you. People of color are coming to this wedding, black people, white people, Asian people, Latino people, Jewish people, and very LGBTQ plus people are coming <laughs> to this wedding. Will they be welcome or will your neighbors burn a cross on their lawn? I'd like to know any white person who had to do that type of work when they were planning their wedding. You don't. You don't. So it's work two and three goes, times and hard. Yeah, exactly. So it goes in everything. Everything. If I may. If yeah. I may. Because when Maya uh, and I went to, sorry, I just wanted to jump in just on that. When Maya and I went to Ireland, mm -hmm. I didn't even think about this, but she called every hostel to make sure that they were okay with black people coming in. And for some reason, I hadn't ever twigged to that. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, that makes perfect damn sense. Yeah. yeah. If I may. Uh, Paula, this, yes. This, is, this, is, this happens all the time. Uh, my, my husband and I have often talked about moving uh, to different places over the years. And we, Can you move your mic closer to your mouth? Yeah, we're, okay. we're losing right your here, audio. Right bit. here? here it's yeah. breaking it's good? up. Okay. So, yeah. It, We've talked about moving to different places. He wants to move, you know, here. He wants to go to this uh, particular place that's further out of the way and all this other kind of stuff. And he's like, I want to be, you know, I want to be some, somewhere where we can have lots of space and there's room and there's not a lot of neighbors and everything. I'm like, no, I can't, I can't be a part of that. He's like, why? He's like, if I don't have a whole bunch of neighbors around me, I don't have anywhere else to go. I could be, I don't want to be isolated by all of this. But even with the spaces that he, he suggests, he wants to look at the houses in this area, in, in this city, in this town, and everything like that. And the first thing I want to know is what's the demographic. Yeah. I need to know what the demographic is because if it is 
white, we can live there. It is a it is a possibility, but it is not likely that it's going to be a pleasant experience. Yeah. I need to know that there is a certain amount of percentage where my child is not going to be the only black kid in the place. Yeah. Or that he's going to be exposed to other people. That he's going to be exposed to Hispanic people. He's going to be exposed to Asian people. He's going to be exposed to white people, but white people that are not going to give him grief. And unfortunately, it's one of the reasons why we are still in New York. Because mm-hmm. nine times out of ten, we have to deal with we, we have to deal with this. And it's just like, okay, well, what's the what's the status with this? And he never really, I don't think he ever really thought about it that way until things like Trayvon and, and things like that started happening. And it wasn't even it wasn't even that sort of a situation, but just the fact that the boy had to was trying to walk home in an area where I guess it was predominantly white people. And he couldn't even do that. Yeah. He, he couldn't even do that. Can you imagine what it's like being in a place like that in a school system that is built like that? Yes. That is that is, that is that is that is agony every day. That is yes. agony. So yes. I, I'm like, no, I won't put my kid through that. I, I won't do it. It's, and then to the whole twice as much and half as far thing, I want to do some of the corporate thing too, because I haven't just done broadcasting. I, mm-hmm. I've, I've somehow I ended up working on Wall Street. I worked at a bank and um, I worked in finance. And most of the time I was a secretary, but for a couple of years, I was actually in charge of training um, specific IT that got developed in the UK, but was used all over the globe. And I was in charge of kind of ramping this, this uh, computer software up. Two instances, I want to make sure it's quick because we want to get to, if we have any potential Q&A, I want to make sure we get there. Um, I had to go to different classes. There were giant, great big bosses, managing directors. They were mandated to come to these things. Um, and they had to tell all their juniors to come to these training sessions. It was a very important piece of software. The team that I was on, um, I had to learn a lot about IT and how things got produced, but I also had to know how enough about banking and all the rest of that stuff to be able to talk to people. And it just so happened, there are other people on our team. Our team was global, but I was in charge of the Americas for this. So there are times I might have to go do training in other, in other places. I went, to, I went to Montreal. I went to Quebec. Quebec, I speak French. I went to Mexico City. I speak Spanish. I had to deal with the people in Argentina. I speak Spanish. And I went to Brazil, and I could fake my way through some Brazilian Portuguese. No one else on the rest of the team, which was basically based in, in London, they, I mean, most people spoke English, and they assumed that everybody could speak English. And part of the reason I was even involved in that bank is because I was fresh off the boat from Japan. I could speak some Japanese, and I could pronounce the names of some of these companies on this Japanese equity sales desk that I got thrown in as a, as a temp. Already, it took me four and a half, almost five years to get a job in that place, even though they'd know me and I'd worked all that time. So it took all that time. All these different departments knew that I could work there. So to move from temp to be employed to get that job, it took a lot. Then I'm in the job, I got put in on a very, credit to my boss, I got put in on a very high level project, had to touch almost everybody in the bank all up and down. The general level of disrespect sometimes that you would get, it's it's a bank, it's an investment bank. It is very well known for not being a remotely hospitable place for most people who walk in there. But I'm used to working in newsrooms and if you work in a newsroom, it's not that nice in a newsroom either. So this is not, I'm used to that kind of environment. But the level of disrespect, if I'm just computer training guy, and if you go around the bank, the only, most of the people who were, who were involved in the bank, who were, who were, I'm going to say black, they either worked in the copy room or um, they were part of the janitorial staff. I was neither one. 
I, I wasn't a banker. There were a few, there were a couple of black people who worked in research, but I was the only one walk, walking around doing that. Some of the juniors had to come in one day to one of the training sessions that I had, and everybody did. And it's an and these people work a lot of hours. I mean, they might work you know eighty hours a week. They're they're putting in serious time. But one day, some of the people came in. I'm doing the training. It's not super complicated, but they don't know how to use these things. This is brand new software. Nobody's seen it. It's it's designed specifically for these groups. And this is during BlackBerry time. So some kid, so a couple of people were on their BlackBerry while I was talking. Then he actually had the nerve to get on the phone. This is only one example. He got on the phone and he was starting to talk and it wasn't like, I got to go. He started having a conversation. So at this, I was kind of done with the total disrespect. Look, I, your boss told you to come in here. You're doing this because you need this for your job so you can make the zillions of dollars. Trainer guy here is not making, he's not making Wall Street money. You are. So why don't you pay attention? So I stopped. I was like, excuse me, can you get off the phone and pay attention to this? And I wasn't trying to say it in a friendly fashion, just like anybody else would in, on Wall Street. But if you're black, you, 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 your lanes are super narrow. You don't yeah. either, you go too far, you're sassy or you're, um, what's the word? Scary uppity. black man. Oh, scary uppity. black man. Scary. Mm. Always scary. But angry black, angry black woman. Hello. Or sassy. You're, not, you're just not qualified. <laughs> you just got the gig because you're black. Um, yes. So I told, I said, excuse me, can you hang up your phone? He was like, I got to go. He was, this guy bothering me. And he seemed really put upon. Hung up his phone. He's like, yeah, this stuff is easy. This is rocket science. I can figure it out. I was like, oh, really? It's, it's, you think it's rocket science? He said, could you figure this out? And I turned around and did something really quick. He's like, well, no, I didn't know where that was. Could you figure this out? Well, no. Could you figure this out? Well, no. I said, I know it's not rocket science. I studied rocket science. I studied aerospace engineering for a year and a half. And I said, I know it's not rocket science, but why don't you shut up, put your BlackBerry down, and pay attention over here? And I was hot. And then no, everybody else who halfway, they were trying to hide their Blackberries under the desk and they kind of put them on the desk and it was over. Long story short, after I'd rescued a couple of missions, I had to go down to Brazil to, to actually save the whole thing, learn IT Portuguese, not easy, um, to be able to get stuff done. I always had way more people come to my meetings and everybody else on the global team. They'd never had numbers like that. I had buy-in from all these different people on, on the highest levels of everything going on. But because of that incident and another incident where I got a little bit past the line, I already had my mind. You stood your ground. You did what was right. You proved all the things you could. You showed too much. You knew too much, and I didn't stay within my lane. And then I knew at some point this is probably my job, even though I was just trying to show what I could do in a group of people who yeah. like showing off what's going on. When the recession hit and they're getting ready to make cuts, I said, I'm done. The other people on my team in New York say, Rod, you do three times more work than anybody else in here. You do all these different things. I'm like, yeah, I'm done. And when the phone call came, most of the people were shocked. And I was like, I knew it. I knew I was you know gone it. because I'd step, even if it doesn't matter how many other people up there like you, you go one step too far with the wrong one. His life, if he's American, if he's black. And these aren't things that get back to why we started having these conversations in the first place. Uppity. We, we had, we had eight minutes and 46 seconds of video that everybody in the quarantine with three camera angles and audio and like a, it probably yeah. had a boom and everything else to watch this guy get choked out to see all of these police incidents that are going on. And these were multiple within several days and they've been going on since Rodney King. We've had things on videotape. Now it took all that time for people to actually understand what's going on. This is when you can have cameras. This is the other stuff when you can't get a house or all these other things that affect your life on an 
on a daily basis that can never be recorded. You're not yeah. sure, but when I rule out everything else that's there, I covered all yeah. the other bases. I always got high marks and all these other things. You can't record it. And this is the stuff we really have to work with because honestly, I think the thing that most black people are mad about during this whole thing that's going on, of course, we're, we're mad at watching the snuff film of, of multiple men getting killed, but it's all these other things because it was the, it's the exhaustion from having seen this exhaustion. in the beginning, seeing people not believing that this is happening. It's happening right in front of your face. And, and the guys got to go home forever. the next night. We've been saying this forever. We've proven our point right. 35,000 right. times. Exactly. And now you're finally doing it. A That's why you saw some of the massive right. global operations. We've been telling you, we've been telling you, we've been yeah. telling you and the group of the seven of us are actually willing to talk to you to let you know, okay, yeah. we want to explain it so you can learn some other stuff and we appreciate you being here. But telling you the good probably majority of people have no time to talk to you we still hope that us telling your stories is actually going to actually bring you in and actually get more and speaking of our stories i just wanted to grab miss teaser back in here because i know she had she's been waiting to say something oh, wow. you gotta jump in teaser the floor is yours well i mean i just want to add to to that point there are a lot of things that we can describe that that have happened from childhood, from being um, sat down at the age of five before you enter school and being prepped at, at every yes. stage of your life for what's going to happen next once you enter middle school, once you enter high school, once you enter college, and then being prepped once you get out into the working world. And I think, um, you know, as we're talking about working twice as hard to get half as much, I think that is something that's a little sometimes really difficult for people to get because you can see it, you can feel it. It's like a gut thing inside, you know when it's happening. You do. It's really hard for other people to, to explain. I'm gonna use one instance where I, I hope you, you really, where you're just kind of like, you just smile. You're like, uh-huh. So I, I do a lot of event management and event production and you know, have been blessed to work with some people who have uh, really been good to me and given me a, a shot. So I was able to get a lot of experience with that. So as a result, though, I you know I have this great man, this resume where there's lots of management and production experience on there. But I noticed a shift in the last five or six years where you know I'm I I use who knows how much to keep this face you know not melted. So I know it's sad, um, but I've noticed where people that I used to manage are now getting jobs that I can't even uh, get anymore without, without, without them recommending me. Yeah. So yeah. in point, so case in point, I, I was up for a position with this particular company, had a wonderful uh, experience with the owner of the company and it was down to me and another person and the other person got it okay not a big deal but there was a, a, a promotional uh, modeling position within that company and I really wanted it. it was a good position all right so submitted my my resume and let the person who took my resume uh, know that I had interviewed before, let them know how much I really enjoyed uh, what the company did, how much I believed in what the company did, and that was all true. Um, you know, very positive experience. I know that my pictures and my resume was viewed. I know they were. 
And a month later, I find out that they're still looking for people. You know how I found out? Because one of my closest girlfriends calls me and happens to be white, calls me and says, hey, so I just got hired for this job and you would be perfect for it. So I want you to submit your resume to so-and-so. <laughs> I said, well, how did you get the position? She was like, well, so-and-so told me about the position and so now I'm telling you. That was another person who I had also managed. Yeah. <laughs> so both of them have now been hired and it's been a month since I submitted. I never got a call, never got any kind of response whatsoever. I email this person, same person mm -hmm. again. And um, because I remember the name and uh, told her that so-and-so and so-and-so so were recommending me. Mm -hmm. She got back to me within an hour. It happens over and over and over again. And you can flat out oh. say, you know, I submitted myself a month ago. I really think a lot of the company, oh, really? But it happens repeatedly, and I'm seeing it a lot, where people who I've hired or people who um, I have worked with, they'll then get another promo modeling position or something else of that nature, and they'll be like, we didn't see you there. And then we asked about you, and, you know, they just said, well, you were on another job. I said, what job? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard. What we want to... The point in telling these stories to all of you is because for those of you that know somebody, anybody on this panel, it's these are stories we tend not to share with you. And then there have been times when we have said or mentioned something and we get told, oh, you're just being, oh, sensitive. it's not that, being it's sensitive. not that, what did you do it's not though? that. No, it's not that. I'm like, yo, I'm in a Gap store wearing short shorts when I could wear short shorts, a little tight T-shirt, and a pocketbook this big, I kid you not, this big, being followed in a store. What the hell am I going to steal? And where the hell am I going to put it? And it <laughs> I can't put it in the T-shirt, can't put it in the shorts. Where the hell? And this is stuff that we have dealt with since we came out the womb. Mm -hmm. And all of this stuff with the protesters and everything, and thank you for the people that have been asking how we're doing. We are exhausted. We're exhausted. We are tired <laughs> because it seems like now, now you hear us? We gotta no. burn shit down for you to fucking listen to what we've been saying and for it's, and it's, years. It's so exactly. It's exactly. It's, we, we're exhausted. It was so, it's exhausting. George, it took days. It took days. It's it's it like George Floyd. Days. It took me three days. I couldn't talk. I, three days. I was George, not really dealing with George anybody. Floyd <laughs> is like this much of the whole thing. That he is we the last to deal snowflake. With. He's the last snowflake on the top and, of and, the iceberg and, that and we so, have been talking about. And so we come to the final point is moving forward. What yeah. do we do to move forward? Because, you know, 
we're coming on to like an hour and 11 minutes. This is not the end. This is the beginning. Mm -hmm. And this is not of a conversation. We can't turn on a light switch and be, be good. It is, I think of it, treat systemic racism, um, subconscious racism, treat it like it's an addiction. Treat it like it's an addiction and you are fighting that addiction. Treat it like you have to go to your AA meeting every day or every three days. That's how you have to treat this. You have to ask your, and we have to ask ourselves too, because we all, we all like to quote Avenue Q, everyone's a little bit racist (laughs) because it's true against whatever group we all have to look within ourselves but we are at the point that we need our friends the people that say for those people that say well i have black friends do you really (laughs) if if you if you feel that you have to make that phrase you don't then you don't have you have you have acquaintances that know your name. That's about where it ends. You mm-hmm. don't know anything about their lives. You don't know anything yeah. about their friendships. So You've got to. Stop and saying it's, it. Stop we saying know it, about white culture. Oh, we yeah. have grown up in white culture. Every single breath we take is seeped in white culture. We turn on the TV, we see white folks. We open up a magazine, we see white folks. We look in the movies, we see white folks. What do you actually know about us? You know, I mean, I still have people asking me, oh, so where's Guyana? Is that in Africa? That's America. Oh, oh, you're kidding. That's America. People think Guyana's in Africa. (laughs) And I'm like, look, now I know y'all done seen that Netflix series on Jim Jones. So please. But, um, Candace, are you? Are we going to open up? I just need to. This so, technical oh, really quickly, are we open up the mic. Uh, um, the, we've um, got our last fifteen yeah. minutes. Mm-hmm. So, um, I've there've been people typing in the side, and like I said, this is an <laughs> ongoing conversation. Um, we would like to open up the mics, or if people type, if they have any questions for us. Um, I had planned for this to be an hour and a half because you know we all have lives we just hope we gave you something to think about but i'll stick around if anyone's got questions thoughts and robbie yes oh, oh before um, hold on, a point of order i want to tell people what to do oh, um if yes. you wish to um if you wish to um ask a question and you happen to be in the in the zoom broadcast you can go to the chat and type your name and let me know that I will try to find you and then make your and make your camera active when we do go to the next person. Okay. Um, so that's fine. And Robbie, go ahead. So um, we have invited you because we care about you. We want you to know what we're going through. These last couple of God damn it, Candace, now you got me doing it. These last couple of shit months have been so goddamn hard. They have been so fucking hard to not run out into the street 
and yell at the top of our lungs, are we not human beings? We want you to ask us questions, but that being said, please respect the fact if, if that day we just can't. Because there's sometimes, like these last couple of weeks, I, I just, the only way that I've been able to survive is by talking to my students and telling them how they're going to get through it and trying to tell them how I've been able to get through it and how my mom has been able to get through it and how my grandparents have been able to get through it. But so, right now, I am so burnt that sometimes we may need just a, a little bit of time. We will try to get back to you, but please respect that. Can I say something We're, before we open this up to um, to the questions? I also want to say that if you are going to ask us a question, if you are going to have these conversations within your own community, if you are going to talk Indeed. to your black friends, the one, maybe two you have, um, then what we need you also to do, you know, I mean, yes, I am exhausted, a little bit more pissed off. But what I'm also not going to tolerate, me personally, and I think my colleagues will agree, I'm not going to tolerate your tears. I'm not. We're done. I'm not going to tolerate you becoming the victim in this. I'm not tolerating that as well. If you're going to talk to us and you're going to hear us, then you need to take yourself out of the center and hear us. Honestly and truly hear us. And stop making it, but I didn't do that. I don't give a shit. I don't care that, no, you didn't own slaves. You still benefit from this system. So figure out in our conversation how we can get to the point where you stand up against the system that you benefit from. Racism is not my problem to solve. It is yours. I will help. Ooh. I will help. But you guys have taken some ownership on this one, and I don't want to hear your tears, and I don't want to hear your victimhood. I want you to listen. I want you to ask questions, and we're more than willing to answer, but I'm not going to sit here and let you boo-hoo me while I comfort you for my, the racism I've had to deal with. What the fuck? That doesn't make sense. So I'd, those, I'd like to those are some established rules. Yeah, sorry, and, No, and I was just going to say, and part of the thing, we say we, 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 us, all of us. Waterproof. And these, are, these, are, these are words for, of convenience. The seven of us in here are different. We're not all mm -hmm. the same people. I, we don't even, but it's amazing how many similar stories that we all can have. Yes. Oh, yeah. But we, as Robbie said, we want to try to further the conversation. And by doing this and leaving the microphone and all the rest of that stuff off, um, we wanted you to hear the stories first. And because yeah. I've seen enough from social media and looking stuff on TV, there are people who do want to listen. I have, because I've been involved with media way before social, I've already written off Facebook and Instagram as any real, meaning, real means of conversation. If you go back and look before George Floyd, you will see nothing but me as my garden. And uh, here's, I made some banana bread. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not Tamara. I mean, she's a real chef. I'm I hate banana chef. bread. What, I, I, I know you do. You don't like <laughs> sweet potato pie. I already know. But anyway, the, um, the, we're willing to talk to you, but we're not monoliths. You'll get a different answer mm -hmm. from all seven of us. And, yeah, I'm, yeah. and trust me, there are way, there's a, there's a huge percentage of people, if you ask the wrong person, they're not going to talk to you at all. They're done. Mm -hmm. We're actually trying to actually, we're, we're trying to move it yeah. forward. And I don't necessarily blame them. I don't know what, what life they live. 
And I don't know how tired they are. I know I was tired. I know I wasn't, I was barely answering anybody after the third day that the thing happened. But I'm, I'm always, it's my life mission because I always feel like some random ambassador of sort of everything and the planet that I want to foster conversation. I want to make that sort of thing happen. But you might run up on somebody who's not having it. They don't want to talk to you. And they might never want to talk to you. And that, that can't be undone. I don't know how to undo that. Um, other than, think- you know, give it a whole bunch of time, but keep trying. And again, we're not all one person, but when you get 90%, 95% of people agreeing on one thing, that means there's a fundamental problem with, with what's going on out there. I've been awake all day. I've been awake since five o'clock. I don't agree with 95% of the things I've done for myself all day. I can't agree with me. How are you going to get all these other people to agree? So when you see political polls or you see all these other things with certain populations of people, um, telling you that this is wrong or this thing, one thing is happening, that lets you now know how super extraordinary that the circumstances are, that they all could agree on one thing. Don't agree with me? If I ask the seven of us to order a pizza, there's going to be almost no agreement right now. So imagine what it takes for all seven of us who don't all know each other to come up with so many stories we're all, you know, nodding our hands like Dave. Where we all so, did on you know. one, two, three, <laughs> the look when they realize you're black. No, no. <sighs> One last okay. thing before we open up, Maya, you um, had a moving on. Yes, you know, everyone, everyone asks a lot, what can we do to solve this? What can we do to move on? Um, and uh, like, ha- like has already been said, you know, Black people are tired. People of color are tired. Um, and some of us are still open to having these conversations, which is why we're here. Um, but if, if you're going to ask, how can I help? What can I do? You can Google. <laughs> you can Google <laughs> to learn about things, right? And I'm saying I'm in school teacher mode now because, <laughs> right? Right, because being, 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 being multiracial, I'm often the safe person to ask about race questions. White people ask me a lot of race questions because they're, they think it's safer. So I'm going in school teacher mode now. Google it. Google anti-racism. Educate yourself. Wonderful libraries and organizations and foundations have made it very easy for you. They have put together reading lists of books. Too busy to read a whole book? They've put together lists of articles. Don't like to read? They've put together lists of documentaries and shorts that you can watch. They have audiobooks. There are audiobooks. Google it. Educate yourself so that you are not putting more of a mental load on the people of color in your life to be your teacher. We want to have the conversation. We don't want to be your teacher. Now, that doesn't mean you should be afraid to ask questions because you can't have a dialogue without that. But Google first. And in addition to educating yourself about anti-racism, about inequality, and about inequity, because those are two different things, read about it. Also, seek out media that is made by people of color. Find things that you like that are made by people of color. If you really like a certain type of art, 
find people of color who are making that art and experience it. If you're really into comic books, find comic books that are made by people of color. Whatever I have a you, list of right? comic books yes. from black content creators. This is also things I mean, that you I can Google. I will hook you up with that. Whatever you are into, seek out the people of color who are making those things. If you are a parent, make sure that the media your children consume doesn't only have white protagonists. If you're an adult, make sure that some of the movies and televisions that you watch aren't just about white people. That is another way to engage and learn because not all of our stories are about the struggle. It is, it, no. it is radical, <laughs> right? right? It's like, like it is... Black love is radical. People of color being oh celebratory God. and being artistic and dancing and feeling joy and being creative is radical. And if you participate in that way, you too will also be radical. And also Amen. make sure that it's not just cis hetero voices. Look yes. for uh, yes. gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer, every every sort of intersection of the everything everything even I'm different somebody, ages I'm everything got to had a good week this week somebody got something good this week yeah that's yes. good. So, oh yeah let's 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 do that thank god we have some okay. uh we have one question um we can go ahead and start if you want Ken. Okay. Yes. Um, um, Anto so. Antoinetta Magoey. I'm going to mangle your name. I apologize. Let me put my talk show radio voice on. Uh, I just requested you start your camera. Antoinetta Magoey, go ahead. Um, thanks for joining us. And, un and un muted. unmute yourself. There you go. Okay. Good. Hi. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you so much for holding this. I'm very, very grateful um, uh, to all of you. Blame Paul Stafford because I said I should do this. And he said to me, what day and what time? Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, my question to whoever and all of you who wanted to, to answer this is, what was the moment that made you realize that you needed to stop yielding and start reclaiming your space? Hmm. <sighs> I'm not quite sure what you mean. I never yielded. I mean, there's a, there's yeah. a point to which I've never yielded anything, and there's always a... a a level or a step where I've, I, I just won't, and I could go into 13 stories where I've been pushed, I've been called every name under the book when I was running Pizza Huts with 40 different employees in different areas and all the rest of that stuff. There's always a line. Um, but to not talk, this is a risk. I don't know what, I think this week was kind of a break. I don't know if I've been, radicalized might be too much, but in the job that I'm in, you're not supposed to run around necessarily, if, if I'm being a journalist, run, run around and tell your opinion. Your um, opinion. It's always a risk to talk about these things, just like it was a risk yes. for me on Wall Street to try to, to stand my ground. I came into this and I set this whole thing up, well, technically and all the stuff in the back, knowing that it's a risk for what's going on. I, I, some of it is, is age. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting 50 in a couple of weeks or in a couple of, in a month and a half or something. Ouch. I, I, I don't care anymore. That's not because I'm done. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. only so much I can do. It's been slow steps with certain things I've decided to step out when I did. It took a while for me to put my picture on LinkedIn. Why? Because if I worked on radio using my voice, if I'm doing commercials or other sort of work, people don't have to know that I'm not black. It's not that I'm ashamed that I'm black, but I'm instantly turning down my, my I'm cutting my, my possibility for work if I am. If I show up, if I'm doing a TV gig, then, well, they're going to find out anyway. At some point I said, well, you're going to find out anyway. The internet's are big and all that stuff is there. 
but I've always stood, if, if I'm here, I, I've always been black. I've been black a long time. I've been black most of my life. And, and I, <laughs> I'm never going to stand down from that. Most so, of my life. You know, most and I don't know, out. I will speak up when it's... it's a, I think it's a, a, a the way you look at it, and I, as I also have never felt like I've yielded ever. And I want to give that credit and thanks to my parents, because yeah. I think when you know, when my parents conducted the great experiment of raising their, their black child in a predominantly white neighborhood. Oh, that experiment. Go in, you know, you go in, you know, ready to really, you know, dig your heels in. And so it's never, to me, either been a question of yielding. You're exhausted because you never stop thinking about being black. Mm-hmm. You, it's something you think about pretty much every day, you know, and I don't know if other people wake up and go, wow. I'm going to be white today. I, yeah. I'm it's, white today. <laughs> like being white today. So the thing is, you kind of have to have a certain inner fight in order to survive and be black, especially in this country. You kind of have to have an inner fortitude or you will at some point just give up or die or do something that's self-destructive. That, that would be yielding. But so it's it, you might get tired, but you always have to wake up another day and reclaim what you think is yours. And, and you have to do that from the inside out. Or Because if not, you'll end up depressed and defeated. And so to a certain degree, um, I think we have to be a little stronger because if we're not, we won't make it. No. Yeah. No. Amen. We, 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 yeah. the, the, um, especially for the women on the panel, I know that we have always had to be the strong black woman. Jesus. I'm tired. Fuck that. I'm not even tired of being the strong black woman. I don't fucking want to be it. Like, I am strong because I'm a strong person. I don't want to have to be the, you know, they say in the movies, the magical Negro. Or, (laughs) I don't don't want to have to be that. Like, fuck that. You know, with with, with us yielding, our, our strength comes from from who we are and who we were raised to be. There's at some point, you know, growing up in a white community and being ostracized by everyone because I wasn't black enough or I was too black or whatever, you, that isolation, that personal isolation gives you a, a, a sense of inner strength. Yeah. You, you have to decide who you are as a person as a really young age and you've got to stand by who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. I'm a black girl. I read a lot super smart. I'm a chef. You know, I'm, I'm all of these different things and I'm all of these different things that other people don't think is black, but I am committed to myself and I'm committed to being all of those things. So, so you stay committed to yourself and, and that is not really yielding, but that's when your, your strength really comes out. I'm not going to be the super black woman for to save the world for everybody else. No, fuck that. I, I'm me, and I am strong because I believe in me, and I do me. And all of the geeky, nerdy, blurdy things that I am into are just a part of me being me, you know? And, and that's my strength. And that's where I'm like, this is who you get. 
And the beauty is, at a certain age, you really do start going, fuck them. Fuck it. That's who I am. It's wonderful, isn't it? Can we have another question? Yeah, before that, I want to make sure I touch on this and and get to this. Because you, even though we're all quite different, there are certain circumstances where I think either financially or with our parents, some of them with maybe a certain education level or not, um, that some of this strand that we have where a certain sort of commonality might actually match. My mom, I mean, I come from a family of educators. My mom was an elementary school teacher and all the rest of this in the city in St. Louis. And I want to make sure we bring this up because this is one of the things that gets lost very frequently. They say, oh, but you guys made it. What about everybody else? What about black on black crime? And what about all this other stuff? Oh, my God. Let me let me let me tell you something. It's like, why why can't black kids? why Why don't they achieve? What's this achievement gap? What's all the rest of this? Let me tell you something, because we've made it this far. It is almost impossible that we've gotten this far to succumb to one if you don't have the institutional memory within your family or other people who are close to you to know how to study to know where to go to if if your if your parents have to work low level meaning paying level jobs multiple jobs and you can't get or afford all the after school programs or all the rest of that stuff and your schools aren't all that good to begin with and your neighborhood might be low and it might not be on the highest the the priority of some of the people in the neighborhood is not education. Why is that? Because a lot of them look at people like us and they see and they hear our stories and they see that, wait a minute, they're working 400 times as hard or their parents are working 400 times as hard and they're barely making it themselves. They're not doing anything. It is not a coward's mentality, I think, or it doesn't show a lack of strength to either succumb to what is going on in your neighborhood that is not productive or to say to actively say i don't know if i'm going to try that because you're doing a lot and you're not really even getting that far either this seems a little bit easier over here not because i'm weak but because what you have seems so ridiculously hard and there's the payoff seems if it's going to happen it's going to seem 20 30 miles 30 years away can i actually do that is it really is it really good and when I speak to kids who are in those situations or when I'm helping teach with my sister and all the rest of this stuff, you feel like you might be telling, you're telling a lie. It's like, no, you study and it's going to be great. All you have to do is study, get these grades. Everything's going to be good. But again, it might not be. I don't, and I, I, just, I just straight up lie to you and they're just, they're not buying it. And a lot of, because of, they've seen it. They're, I, how am I going to lie to them? And see, I don't see those people as, as weak. Teacher, and, as, as teacher, and I don't see them I as weak. You know. As a teacher, I cannot and I will not lie to them. I tell them, listen, this is this is hard. It's going to be hard for a while, but you have a choice. You can go out there in the streets and do it the easy way. You may get by. You may end up being El Chapo, but more likely you can be that random stick-up kid who's dead or in the jail. You Or you could go over here and go to college. You may not be the most successful motherfucker in the world, but you're not going to be dead or in a jail because of drugs. You may be better in jail because, you know, <laughs> you happen to be sleeping in your house and someone does a no-knock warrant on your house and kills you. Jesus. But, you know. You know. Little, <laughs> little thing. things. Taking a job. Yeah, exactly. um, I'm sorry, what's the question? Really, really quickly, Lisa, Raphael, um, what you said here, it's about sharing and celebrating our differences to learn the beauty of all of our cultures. Yes. Yes. And Yes. And in case you did not hear that, yes, it is. Uh, Because I have a biracial household and I want my boys to be proud of their father's culture 
as much as they are proud of mommy's culture and as much as they are proud of their friends' cultures. I, I look at Logan's friends. All of them, all of his friends are biracial. You've got uh, Chinese and German. You've got Izzy is, oh, crap. Izzy's mom, I think, is Swedish. And his, I, I don't know where in Africa his dad's from. But these are teenagers. This, this is a New York thing. Our teenagers are growing up like that. And so long as we don't put this bullshit in their head and we fix this shit because it's their world. It is their world. We need to fix this shit for them. Okay. There was another question from uh, Robert Evanilla. I said, is, is there anyone on the panel, panel who might be able to talk about successful steps that you may have taken to get better learning materials and teaching techniques into our school systems? All right, um, I, I'm, a school, several. I'm a high school teacher. So what I do is I go out and I find, I Google stuff, like Maya said. I want, my, my school is predominantly Latino and black with a couple of uh, Chinese students. So when I go in and I know the makeup of my classroom, I try, and this is harder now that I'm forced to teach science, when I was teaching English, I made sure that we read books by Black authors, Latino authors, Chinese authors. I made sure to put up pictures of Black authors, Latino authors, Chinese authors, different sorts of people, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, everyone. I want them to make sure that they know that the entire cornucopia of human of humanity is there for them to read i want i don't want them to be done the same way that i was done in that well you're black so you have to read black stories or you're white so you have to read white stories read everything mm -hmm. if you are a parent ask your teacher what you can do we are always always glad for any help we very seldom get good <laughs> comments or questions from parents it's often well why does my son have a zero because i'm a fucking intern in anything that's why <laughs> so if you oh your parent teacher conferences are rough man <laughs> <laughs> listen i'm i'm like you i'm getting to the old black man thing of <laughs> Easy, Uncle Phil. If you want right. to actually speak to your your students' teacher, they will appreciate it. Ask them specifically what they would like for you to do. Um, anyone listening, if you're on the Zoom, if you're in the Zoom meeting, feel free to uh, raise your hand. Uh, Robert. Um, Robert, uh, let me find you. Uh, yes. Can you raise your hand on the computer? Oh, I found you. Never mind. Uh, let me uh, have you start your video and go ahead and uh, unmute yourself once you start your video, Robert. Uh, thank you so much. I, I'd like yeah. to just follow up on that question if I could. Um, I think my wife and I have been uh, very active uh, in engaging our teachers. 
Um, and I think we've also found that um, the issue of race, when and if it comes up, uh, when engaging the teachers, adds a, a whole extra deep layer. Um, I, I might also ask about not just the, the books and the reading, but additional techniques, because we've had some questions about um, Caucasian teachers teaching uh, slavery and Caucasian teachers teaching um, uh, accepted texts for Black History Month and so forth. And there's always questions about who can do it wonderfully, who does it poorly, but it's always going to fall to one teacher or another, and that teacher may or uh, may not be a member of a specific uh, race when we're talking about race. Uh, I was, and we, I personally have a lot of difficulty getting through that extra layer to say, hey, there are these books over here. How can I get those on the shelf? The teachers are usually very receptive. I find it's frequently the administration the school board. that, that <laughs> yeah, is well, resistant. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, I thank you, by the way. Um, I, I was very lucky last year. Well, unlucky too, because uh, we went through about three principles. So nobody gave a fuck what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So I was able to teach uh, pretty much what I wanted to. There are, however, assigned curriculum more often than not, uh, because somebody up in City Hall knows someone who works for the book company, and so that's the book that they got. I'm going to be straight up with you. Or it's, we were, hey, look, guys, it's February. Let's read this scholastic book about Rosa Parks. That's all we need to know. Yeah. <laughs> But there are so many, and I'm so glad to work with the teachers that I, I do work with, because there are so many different books by so many different, varied, varied uh, people of color, varied uh, sexualities and genders and gender presentations. They're like the entire, if there is a story, someone has written it down somewhere. Like you said, the problem is the administration. Generally speaking, a lot of teachers may be either too timid uh, to try to teach these things or they may not feel comfortable with it, and I get that. But we can always try. I believe that life should be kind of lived on the slightly uncomfortable edge. If you're not kind of worried, am I pushing this too far? You're not stretching, you're not growing, you know? So, I mean, that's just because I'm older. A lot of the teachers are younger. So they're like, I don't want to get in trouble. And, you know, and that's totally acceptable. It's, um, I don't know. I would just say, just keep trying. One thing that we can do in terms of with school boards and administration being a problem is to vote in our local elections, people. I was going to say, it's a local elected position. It's an yeah. elected position. Vote yeah, that. and that's, that's a broader issue because that right now, that doesn't help you in your classroom with this issue, right? That, that's, that's something that, yeah. that, that we can work on um, in terms of in order to make it easier for teachers to use the materials that are out there to talk about anti-racism, to talk about real history, and to talk about inequality and inequity. Um, that, that fight with school boards does exist, and a great way to not have that fight anymore is to vote in our local elections um, so that it is easier for teachers to use the resources that 
that are out there. And you asked specifically about technique because the books are out there. Um, the best technique is going to be different for everyone. And that's not an easy answer, but every schoolroom yeah. is different every year to year, as all teachers know, it's completely different because it depends on the kids in your classroom. So dealing, yeah, dealing with the kids in, in the technique is knowing who's in your classroom and experimenting and, and being okay as a teacher to know that you don't have all the answers, but navigating the classroom in an honest way and acknowledging where you're coming from is a great technique when you're working with the kids until we can get to that point where it's not a fight with the school board. Right. And looks like tomorrow, um, that's a good answer, but tomorrow we get to, I'm hungry, which is why I saw this question. Somebody raised their hand and it popped up. Um, uh, <laughs> Wait, just really about... quick. Rob, it's great to see you. Tell Charlene I said hi. Focus. <laughs> she's, been, she's been holding that in for like six minutes. <laughs> so a question from Caitlin Doyle Thornton says, uh, from your experiences, what is the line between appreciation and appropriation? And specifically to Tamara, as this conversation is happening in food, what's your perspective on appreciation and appropriation? Oh, as home chefs. Oh, okay. We might, some people might differ on this one, but go is for it. The Chrissy Tomorrow. Teigen other chick debate, I'm wondering. Oh my gosh. Yes, I, I heard about that. I, I, don't know, I don't know that I think that, that the Chrissy Teigen, was it Amanda or somebody, that debate was a, a pre appreciation versus appropriation. Oh, I, don't I think know. it's, especially when we're dealing with food and culture, because food is essentially uh, culture. I mean, it's a, it's a humongous aspect of culture. To appreciate a culture um, is, is to celebrate it. To appropriate a culture is to Sorry, my legs make a mockery of it by by claiming it as your own. So, you know, there's this big, because of this, all that's going on in the world, there's a big thing going on in the food industry as well, where, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard about Bon Appetit, things like Bon Appetit, but now they're actually going after the food network. Um, and one of the things that people have said in the food network is that you take all these foods from all these different cultures and you slap Bobby Flay on it. Wait, what? You you have Bobby Flay talking to you about Mexican food when there's these amazing well, Bobby Flay Mexican know about curry goat. <laughs> it, but but uh -oh. then that's the thing. The appropriation <laughs> comes in. The, the appropriation comes in when you will take a food type and and you erase the people who produced it. Uh, you know, yes, yes. You, you erase the culture that came from it and then you make it marketing. Like, okay, perfect example, oxtails. Oxtails and neck bones, oxtails. Oxtails, for most of my life, were a really, really inexpensive food that African-Americans ate, Caribbean-Americans ate, um, Asian-Americans right. ate. Yeah. Like, it, it's food of the, the lower class, the harder working. It was, it was leftover meat and you just made something good out of it. A couple of years ago, some white boy chef put it on a fancy menu, and now oxtails, if you've noticed, the price Expensive. of oxtails is insane. through the roof. <laughs> it's through the roof. Because somebody said, oh, we're going to put this in fine dining now. Now, here's the thing. 
they didn't change the recipe. They didn't change the cooking methods. They just erased the people connected to it. And so when you're appropriating food, it means you're taking this food, this part of this culture, this part of these people, and you're erasing them. And, and then putting your own little spin on it and claiming it as your own, as opposed to going, hey, you know what? I went to this great Jamaican restaurant in Harlem and I served, I've made some oxtails and I wanted to recreate that in my kitchen. And here, I brought the chef from that great Jamaican place in Harlem to show you how he yeah. made it. Sorry. It's not hard. Uh-oh. Sorry. Whoa. Whoa. Got a little excited. Um, <laughs> but to show you how we made them. And, and that's how you appreciate something. You bring the yes. people in, you bring the story yeah. in, you bring the flavor of the, the culture into it. If you're only taking it and running, mm -hmm. then it's appropriation. Yeah, it's uh, not hard. Tomorrow, if you want to ask people to pie, make it. But talk to a black woman. Yeah, Paula? Mark, can I, can I, can I just ask? Okay, uh, so some years ago, there was a whole big, a big amount of controversy um, regarding these uh, two women who opened up this uh, Mexican restaurant, I think, out in like Portland or something like that. Mm -hmm. And there was an interview, and they, you know, these two white ladies, and they 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 were being interviewed. Was it the clean restaurant? Like I don't know if it was the clean restaurant or what, what restaurant it was, but when they were asked about their recipes, basically they just admitted that, you know, they'd gone to Mexico and they'd asked a bunch of people about their, about their food and everything like that. And even if the, the ladies who are like, you know, 90 years old and have been doing this their entire lives, if they didn't want to give up their recipes, they would just, you know, they'd sneak around, they'd find out and everything like that. So they just take those things from, the, from them, went back and opened up their own restaurant. They monetized the whole thing and, Yep. Then they seemed surprised when they got called out for cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what is that? A Chinese restaurant here like a couple years ago, too? Uh, the last okay. story I heard about it was uh, there was a Asian, I think it was a Mexican restaurant that was run by um, some white women, and they described their restaurant as the clean Mexican restaurant. Oh, oh that oh, I heard. Like, what? That I the heard. What? Yeah. The clean, the clean, as a clean restaurant. Oh, oh my God! God. <laughs> because, what? You know, and that was wow. a big thing. And God. you know, chefs from around the world were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Don't give the impression that when we make our food, that we are dirty. What? Oh my but when God. you make our food, it is clean. Like, don't mm -hmm. you dare put that out in the universe. I, I don't Google it. I swear to God. I remember oh, no, chapter. I, I believe you. I absolutely um, believe you. And, and, but that's wow, the thing, there's so many things that are stolen. You know, like it goes back to the whole Southern soul food. Southerners are like, fried chicken and collard greens are ours. Yeah, sure, because you have women making them. They became yours. They became yours because there was a culture of people making them for you. And they became yours. Black eyed peas are from Africa. They became yours, Southerners. Because the women working in your kitchens, because the white women weren't working in your kitchens, the women working in your kitchens made them food that you love and you believe in and you think of home when you think of that food. That's why it became yours. But it well, was we, oh. mm. It's some people who don't want to even acknowledge that. They don't want to acknowledge that. Yes. It's, it's that whole other step that happened. And this is yeah. not even necessarily on that, on that, that cultural part, but 
I, I hope that some of the conversation gets further where people are willing to confront the uncomfortable or to look mm-hmm. just a little bit further and look at all the evidence that's right in your face because we're, we're talking about race and ethnicity. You had Ancestry.com. I took the test and found out that I'm like, I'm like 11% European um, and 1% Native American, 1% Filipino. I don't know where, nobody knows where that came from. I get that. There somewhere. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I was like, okay, that's cool. Whatever, move on. At one point, I, I've had conversations with people, usually, usually white people. Most black people know somebody, you know, somebody was playing somebody around back somebody. in the slave quarters and all that stuff. It's just, that always say they us, keep sticking their wicks in all different pockets. Right, and that's just that's just known and it's accepted because we can't go out and find who did it hundred years ago, but we know it, it's a thing. Okay, whatever. <laughs> I brought it up, and people were. I was speaking with some multiple groups of white people who would say, oh, what's your ancestry? So I'm like, you know, 10, 11% European. Really? Oh, that's amazing. Oh, I didn't know. I was like, yeah, I'm kind of dark. It doesn't really show up, whatever. Oh, wow. So so who married? Was it like a romance or, or how did it happen? I was like, oh. why are you? <laughs> Oh, I've had this happen sweetie. multiple, multiple oh, times. Sweetie. I'm like, and I said, you know? I'm pretty sure that some master somewhere raped my parents, and they, they, you know, people get all fragile. They're like, oh, oh, well, no. Why do you think that? It's like my father's family is from Southern Tennessee and Mississippi, and my mom's side of the family is from Eastern Texas and Western Louisiana. I'm going with rape. I'm not going with some like yeah. beautiful like story. They're, that they're, happened, they're, they're waiting for this. They're waiting for the big romanticized idea <laughs> that they became a couple and they they fought against all the fought against all the odds. And this is like, oh, sweetie, have wait, a seat. But wait, this 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 is what I don't understand for the people that romanticize it. Yes, and I'm sir. like, didn't we just celebrate the anniversary of Loving versus Virginia? Yep. So where the hell was this romance going to happen when the fact that the person I made my life with for a while was illegal? Yeah. Paula, your, re- your marriage was illegal. Absolutely. I mean, so, so how the and hell... That didn't, and that didn't happen until 1967. <laughs> right. <That didn't> <laughs> so how the, hell, how the hell was it all going to be romance? I heard this one person say, and when they said this, it made me go, Ugh. Oh. For every black person you see mm-hmm. that is a whole different hues of color, mm-hmm. please realize that all of these European features we have... Mm-hmm. It's a higher percentage. It's a result of rape. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a thing. And yeah. I don't understand how how that is not something that that's really not thought of. You have or to understood. Explain that because even when I was growing up, I would have people say, "So what are you?" And I said, "Excuse me, I'm black." They're like, "Yeah, but there's something else in you." So a little milk is in your coffee, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> Um, to be fair, no uh, one's ever asked me that. So not <laughs> that question. They've never asked me. They've never asked me that. But no, I completely understand that. Yeah. I know that there's more. Eric in the chat was saying it's the Gone with the Wind syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. A movie I've never, movie I've never seen. Decided it was going to be okay to call themselves Lady Antebellum. It's because we are not taught history in this country. We nobody knows about Reconstruction. They don't know about mm. 
Senator Hiram Revels. They don't understand that the first black senators happened like right after the Civil War until yeah. white people went, oh shit, they got too much power. Smash them down again. You know? I know yeah. about Reconstruction. I watched uh, Birth of a Nation. It's a great movie. <laughs> Candace, <laughs> 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 okay, do you have another question? Wait, let's get back on track. Do we have another yeah, we question? Another question. <laughs> yes, quickly. Quickly. Jesus. Derailed. Uh, can we, can we take uh, I can't uh, see the questions. No, Anyone? I don't think um, Anyone? some people are embarrassed of being white. Okay, we'll move past that. Um, let's see what else. Uh, don't be that. embarrassed. Just. You Just know. don't don't be the one who keeps doing that. You'll be fine. Yeah. Oh, um, actually, call out your friends. friends. Call out your I, friends when they I, do that stuff. I did want to say, for the whole um, appro appropriation thing, appropriation. look at my lips. They're not valued on me, but they're valued mm -hmm. on Julia Roberts. Or Kylie Jenner. Look at for those of Set. you that have seen the the, the the backside. Not valued mm -hmm. on me. The valued on uh, what's the Kardashian chick, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. These are natural. And they're fantastic. My complexion is natural. Yet I had to watch people during this COVID thing, this man with his tanning salon saying, I'm going to open it. Who, who cares about COVID? I said, wait a minute. You want my color, you want my lips, you want my boobs, you want my ass, but you don't want me? Yeah. Yes. Yep. That, that should be your answer right there. Yes. And now, say that to somebody. Value all of these things elsewhere, but you don't value it on the source. Yes. And part of that has to do with black bodies and brown Racing bodies them. and native bodies being a commodity, not mm -hmm. being yeah. human. People yeah. of color being the mascot, right? Yeah. And you want to you want to listen to the music. You want to you want to wear the clothes. You, you want the want, swag. You want that swag. You want you want a, a Native American person on your butter box, right? Oh, like like <laughs> like like when it comes to even appropriation. Notice. Yeah, when it when it comes to appropriation, it's 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 taking it's literally taking not just the clothes and the music and the style. It's it's taking the bodies of people, and and that makes people uncomfortable because it makes people think about slavery when you think about bodies as a commodity. But that's what it is in this country. Black bodies are commerce. When white people yes. first came to this country, the natives, the indigenous people here, their bodies were commerce. And we are still living with that now, which is why we have, just like what Candace was talking about, we have people wanting to get all these elements. We see images of black people and of brown people and of native people as mascots and dealing with the uncomfortable truth of our bodies being commerce is something that we've got to face. Or, or private prisons, or private prisons. Yeah, that's oh a, that whole sort of thing yeah, that goes on, let, let alone, situation. and I don't know how anybody, black or white, because there are a lot of black people who love sports and they love watching the NFL and they love watching the draft. And I've worked in the sports department. I've worked with Joe Buck. I work with Jack Buck. I work with a lot of these people and all this. I've done this the stuff. Market. I'm not that into 
sports and I don't watch it anymore. You start paying sort of attention. How do you watch the draft? How do you watch the NFL combine? How do you, I'm looking at this. I'm like, this is messed up. You're literally sitting this here talking about block. this guy's this is the auction and all this it's stuff. The slave like, market. I, I can't, see, yeah, I can't. I and I'm not that, that, I'm not that rat. I'm, I, once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. I'm like, what is this? What am I yeah. doing? You know, what is worth, what is valued in too many communities, especially underserved communities. It's either mute, you can be black, you, can, you can't be the astronaut. That's not the one, the thing they everybody to tell you to go after. You can be the musician, mm-hmm. you can be the athlete. And if your options seem that small, everybody wants to push and talk about being an athlete and all the rest of that, all the rest of that stuff. Stop playing into that. And I don't want to play into that. And I stopped watching the NFL for a really long time um, for other reasons. And I wish I could boycott it extra, but, but whatever. That whole thing and being obsessed with that, yes, people are great at it. They're good at it. But there's other stuff we do. And there's always been other stuff we do, but sometimes it's not as valued and it's way more difficult to break through all of those because I'm pretty sure all of us in here have been either the first something, first black something to do something or the only black something to do something in their family, in their daily life, in the, in the business life, the personal life. Yep. And it's, you know, that, that gets exhausting when you're the first and only to do it. And you have to be a certain kind of person to get through it. And you hopefully, I've, I've adopted this. I'm building a bridge for somebody else to go past. It's going to be way easier to do it than it took yeah. me to get through to get that yeah. stuff. That's the only thing that and, makes it any easier. Right. And on that note, we are at exactly two hours. So <laughs> on that wow, note, that was long. <laughs> I thank you all for thank coming, you. for attending. Thank you all for listening. Yes. Because far too often, if you're doing the typing on Facebook, nobody's listening. This way, people listen. But just remember, this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the conversation. So we are hoping that you will talk to the people in your community, in your personal, in your personal group of friends, talk to your tribe. If help, Talk to me. Be careful of my answer, because I will be honest. But talk and do and be aware so that when you see something happen in a store, in the street or something, don't just stand by. Because if you open up your mouth, that's how things start to change. Like Maya said, Google. Google and talk amongst your yourselves. Google talk is your friend. Yourselves. Don't talk right. to us because we can't solve it. We, you got the stuff that we hear is the end result. There's way more stuff that we don't hear. Maybe Maya hears like fifty percent more than than we do. So we're not hearing it. I don't hear all that stuff, and I don't want to hear it. I hear enough of the bad crap. Talk amongst yourselves, and then you have to be brave enough, as we have to be on every on an everyday basis, to stand in the possible reaction that's going to come from the people. Like, believe it or not, NASCAR. I couldn't care less about NASCAR, but they knew good and well they were getting in deep water when they decided to say get rid of the Confederate flag. Oh yeah. The, I mean they 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 whoa that I that, I that that was amazing. It's, it's not gonna that make me watch NASCAR because I don't care, but just be that brave <laughs> with your own people when you see something wrong. You came here and you wanted to hear us, you want to learn. You have to be that brave when you hear somebody else say something wrong and be willing to take that blowback knowing that you're doing the right thing, you're on the right side of history. That's something I hope you can walk away with. And also, lastly, um, if you would like something like this, again, touching on other topics within, you know, the 
Black, African American, PLC community. I would like let, to let us know because I will lose more hair and we'll try to put something else again, um, up like this again, to talk about various things. Um, I know one thing I'd like to talk about is um, biracial families, because I got one. Paula's got one. Maya. Well, yep, that's it. They're coming to get me. We gotta go. <laughs> Just um, send me a message, post stuff in the comments. Thank you all so much, so much, so much, so much for paying attention to listening to us, to hearing our stories. We've got so many more stories. Um, so that is all I will say. Um, thank you. And um, on that Good night, night note. Peace.